0: Me. Oh Lord, fill these empty words of mine with a life that only comes through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. I was listening the other day to an NPR uh, article on the radio about counterfeit or copycat items in our clothing and fashion. This part of the story particularly focused in on the iconic brand of the, the Converse All Star shoes. Do you know what I'm talking about? Those shoes that were made popular way back when in the 70s. They were often used for, for basketball. I think they were used in the era of, of the Magic Johnson and Larry Bird era of basketball. And given this era you, era, you often saw these shoes paired with those incredibly short shorts that they used to wear in basketball those days. Well, th- these Converse All-Stars uh, have, have fallen af- out of style in recent decades, but they are making a comeback. The shoes, that is, not, not the shorts, thank <laughs> God. But so are imitator brands, and that's what the NPR article was focusing on. So also were imitator brands that mimic the unique and iconic look of these canvas All-Star shoes. These newer brands are so similar that only the logo, which often is very, very small and hard to see, would, would reveal which are the legitimate throwback shoes of the 70s. And, of course, the NPR article was interested in the lawsuit that Converse was, was uh, uh, thinking about to sue these imitator brands from, from robbing their, uh, their image and, and, and their business. But then the NPR broadcast asked a, a question. In a world of off-brand look-alikes and copycat fashion stores, one can wonder which brand is truly the legitimate shoe, or does it really even matter? Well, perhaps we could ask a similar question of Jesus and the Pharisees in our gospel account. Which one embodies the heart of God? Which one truly represents the genuine mind and mission of God to the rest of the world? You see, on the surface level, Jesus and the Pharisees seem quite alike, actually. Let me explain. Our gospel lesson opens with with, with this, this, this question that the Pharisees ask of Jesus... to test his legitimacy within Judaism. You see, all the way back in chapter 5 of this same gospel... the Pharisees wondered if Jesus had come to abolish the law and the prophets... which Jesus at that time then denied. But here again, the Pharisees press the issue. If Jesus was truly a radical... if he didn't represent true Judaism then his answer to this question ought to reveal it. You see, their question cuts to the heart of Judaism, the heart of what defined the Jews as God's chosen people. Their question centered on the law. Which commandment in the law is the greatest? They asked Jesus. So how radical and how controversial was Jesus' answer? Well, apparently... Not at all. The answer Jesus gave to the Pharisees was completely, well, Jewish. Actually, quoting part of the most famous prayer in all Judaism, the prayer of the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Here in Matthew, the first part of the Shema wasn't uh, contained, only only the second half of the prayer, but the first part would have been implied as it is explicitly in Mark's account. This prayer would have been recited twice daily by every pious Jew and also painted on the doorposts of every Jewish home as prescribed by Deuteronomy chapter 6. This prayer, the summary of the law, was so fundamental to the Jews. And the coupling of it with the command to love one's neighbor as oneself was not unknown either. So yet again, what Jesus answered was nothing out of the ordinary for typical Jewish teaching in his day. So what's the difference? What's the difference between Jesus and the Pharisees if they both summarize the law In the same way, which one legitimately embodies the will of God for the world? Which one is the imitator brand, so to speak? The Pharisees and Jesus simply look very similar. Why did Jesus come at all? Why did the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, become incarnate? Just to answer the question in exactly the same way as his contemporary Jews. Well, what we have to remember, friends, is that the law is still the law from God, and so Jesus doesn't change what the Father has set up for his people. This is why he summarizes the law in the same old, same old manner as the Pharisees would have had done. So where's the difference? Well, what we have to understand here is that Jesus doesn't so much bring a new radical law. The difference actually is in how he radically embodies The same Jewish law. Unlike any Jew has done ever before. Now let's take a look at what that actually means. Quite clearly there are two elements in Jesus' answer to the Pharisees. Our relationship with God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. And the second element is with our neighbor. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. How is it that Jesus radically obeys these. How does Jesus radically obey the first command to love the Father? Well, he does this quite simply by knowing the Father's will and by being perfectly obedient to the Father. We find sayings all throughout the Gospels, especially the Gospel of John, where Jesus says, "'Truly, truly, I say to you, "'the Son can do nothing on his own, "'but only what he sees the Father doing. "'For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise.'" that the Father and I are, are one, and elsewhere, the Father is in me, and I in the Father. It's because Jesus in his humanity has given himself completely over to the Father that he radically embodies what it means to love God with his entire being. Even when he was coming to his crucifixion, we find Jesus saying, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this reason that I have come. Father, glorify your name. And with his last breath on the cross, he says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Jesus knew the will of the Father, and because he loved the Father with his entire being, he did not waver from the Father's will. He loved the Father with all that he had, his time, his vocation, even his own life. He gave himself completely over to the Father and completely over to God's mission to save the world. Now what about the second, second element of the law? What? How, how does Jesus radically embody loving your neighbor as yourself? And this is perhaps what the Pharisees would have found surprising. This is what they would have found As most radical. So you see we know that the Pharisees strictly enforced the law. And remember that's really what we're talking about here isn't it? That was the question that they asked Jesus about in the gospel in the first place. But the Pharisees used the law in a very particular way you see. They used the law to sound at a very limited definition of who their neighbor is. Those who like them obey the law in the same particular way, those who would have been their neighbors who they treated with this kind of love. It would have been an insulated, inward-focused type of love, as you can imagine. Love those who are like you, more or less. That's quite comfortable, easy, and safe to do, isn't it? Certainly no one would get crucified for doing that, would they? But we remember Jesus' teaching on neighbors, especially captured in the story of the Good Samaritan. The Jew in the ditch who fell prey to the robbers, you might remember, discovered that it was the Samaritan and not the two previous Jews who passed him by who acted as his neighbor. The surprise of that story is that neighbors exist beyond the boundaries of the chosen people. That, in fact, to love the covenant God of the Jews and to believe that this God has created all means that every person that he has created indeed is their neighbor also, Jew and non-Jew alike. That to embody the heart of this God, to embody the heart of his law that he gave for his people, as Jesus summarizes here, is to give oneself totally over to God And in doing so, a person gives oneself totally over to one's neighbor. Therefore, love the Lord your God with all that you are and your neighbor with all that you have. This is to embody the mind of God. But you see, it's not so easy as that, is it? This is where things get a bit tricky, you see. The Pharisees thought they knew the mind of God. They thought they were loving God with their entire being. But when we come to analyze them with the second part of that law, loving their neighbor as themselves, we see that they weren't doing it after all, were they? They were very sincere and very intentional in their faith, but they were deceived in their practice, weren't they? What about us? Among all of the takes on Christianity and Jesus, how can we truly know if we are embodying the mind of God through these great commandments? Well, if we are giving ourselves completely over to God, well, then it's reasonable to think that we will begin to have his character too, wouldn't we? We look to God for who and what we should love not ourselves. We look to God for what we should desire. We look to God as our creator for what should break our hearts. We look to God and not ourselves to define for us who it is who is our neighbors. And how is it, friends, that God loves? How is it? Who is it that God defines as our neighbor? Well, we can make this a little more personal, actually, can't we? You and I... Let's talk about us. You and I would have been counted as the furthest thing from being God's neighbors by worldly standards. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, if we were to read in St. Paul's letter to Romans chapter 5, we would read that uh, Paul calls us enemies of God. Kind of far from being neighbors. Enemies. Enemies because every act of sin, every act of disobedience is actually an act of rebellion against God. Going all the way back to the Genesis story about the story of the the Garden of Eden. Perhaps Adam could have been counted as God's neighbor then when they dwelt together in the Garden. But what happened with the first sin? Well, we see they're no longer neighbors, are they? Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. They're exiled from God's presence as a symbolic representation of the spiritual death that comes with sin. Humanity from this point on was not neighborly to God. It is a far, far different story, isn't it? But back to Jesus, who radically embodies the heart of the Father and the heart of God's God's heart behind the law. Jesus broke through every possible boundary that have, could have kept us from God's love. Every label, every prejudice, every ethnicity to extend the Father's love to us. That while there was nothing within us deserving it, Jesus' incarnation, His life, death, and resurrection was His way to bring us, a fallen humanity, you and me, back into the presence of God. And so we see God's love for neighbor knows no boundaries. And to give yourself completely over to this God, to love this God with all of your heart, all your soul, and all of your mind, is to love your neighbor as God has loved you. Faith in this gospel, friends, is supposed to restructure our motives it's supposed to bring change. It, change to our self-understanding, our value system, and our worldview, how we, how we treat and view other people. But obedience to this great commandment is impossible without that change in our hearts that comes with the understanding of God's heart for us. And the heart of God that loves us and has gave, given himself for us also loves your neighbor And has given himself for your neighbor. Indeed, for the life of the whole world. So how do we do this? How does our love for God propel us to to do this? How does it propel us into our love for our neighbor? The way God loves them. Well, friends, a simple place to begin is to love what God loves. And to hate what God hates. It's to understand the gospel, friends. Jesus hates suffering. He hates injustice, sickness, and death, so much so that he came and experienced it all to defeat it and someday to wipe the world clean of it. Knowing that this is the heart of our God, then we can't simply love God and at the same time be indifferent and passive about the hunger, sickness, and injustice in the world around us. And it's these people who are caught in the trap of suffering, caught in the injustice and sickness and death around us that Jesus loves. And so we are called to love them too, beyond any man-made boundary that we might use to separate us from them. God loves them with this neighborly love, and we must too friends there are many knockoff brands of Jesus out there today that does not require you to love your neighbor there are many counterfeit christianities that allow its followers to simply become insulated from the real needs of the world a world that needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ but only the Jesus of the scriptures and the faith that his church reveals is genuine And we clearly see what Jesus commands us in our gospel passage today. Do you want to know if you are giving yourself completely over to God? Do you want to know if you are following Jesus? Friends, look at how you treat your neighbor. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. Christianity isn't something that we believe so that we might be served. Certainly... We, we get everything from it, joy, the joy of salvation. But we believe, friends, to serve God. And God is on a mission to save the world. And it's through loving our neighbor across any man-made boundary that we participate in God's mission by being salt and light to the world, by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. God has given himself completely over to you and Jesus Christ Now give yourself completely over to him and your neighbor whom he loves also. Amen.